Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. For those interested in additional resources or services, such as the weekly planners, online planners for Chrome or Outlook, keynotes, live training, coaching, or certification, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. Now, when you listen to an episode that resonates with you, we invite you to share it with your family, friends, and team members so that they can experience the same type of motivation and results in their lives. Also, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. It works on Apple, Stitcher, Google, or whatever platform you're using so that you can get a new podcast reminder each week. Now sit back, let's get started, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to all of our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners, wherever you may be in the world today. We are honored to have you with us. And this is your host, Steve Schallenberger. And we have a terrific guest with us today. He is the founder and CEO of Body Talk. And over the past 21 years, his team have trained over 100,000 business leaders around the world to improve their communication and impact, including one client who gained over $1 billion in new business in just one year using the strategies that he teaches. So welcome, Richard Newman. Thank you. Thanks so much, Steve. Good to be here. Now, I've been looking forward to this. It's a great subject that we're going to talk about. And before we get started today, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Richard Business leaders all over the world really rely on Richard to transform their communication and to speak on the biggest stages. One client, as we mentioned just now, gained over a billion dollars in new business in one year using Richard's techniques. So he's done a great job and he has had to learn it all from scratch. Richard is highly introverted and he has a high functioning autism, and was painfully shy as a child. So I'm looking forward to talking about that because that's a strange brew right there, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely is. Yeah, yeah. So looking forward to talking about this. At age 18, Richard started his mission to discover the core communication principles. And he went to live in the foothills of the Himalayas with Tibetan monks who spoke no English whatsoever, and they had to communicate non-verbally to understand each other. He then worked as a professional actor, can't wait to hear about that, studying how to walk, move, and speak to increase his impact on the audience. And he became a keynote speaker, coach, author, and a speechwriter, winning the coveted Cicero Grand Prize for Best Speechwriter of the Year. So, well, way to go, man. Those are fun things, Richard. Let's get into it. Tell us about your background, including any turning points and what got you into the world that you're in today. Yeah, well, great question. So many turning points along the way. But essentially, you know, I'm I'm 44 at the moment, and I've really been on this journey of understanding communication and studying it in various different ways for the last 40 years. So the first big turning point for me came when I was four years old, nearly five. 
my parents moved house. So I moved away from the comfort of the, the friends and the friendships I'd grown up with since birth and then moved across to this new school. When I got to this new school, I was very excited to go in there, meet the teacher, meet the new kids and hopefully make some friends. And during the course of that day, I really struggled. I struggled to connect with anyone, to get a conversation going and felt like I was in some kind of glass bubble, totally unable to connect with people. And I started to wonder, is, is there something I'm missing here? Is there something the other kids can do to make friendships? And I, and I can't. And, uh, you know, the teacher tried to reassure me saying, look, don't worry, it's your first day. I started to recognize that actually there was something that was happening in those situations where my sister and I, we moved into this new school at the same time. And, and she very quickly managed to make friends as a very sociable person. There was just a, like I missed the off ramp there. And later, as I went through my years at school, I started to feel that there was perhaps something different about how I was viewing the world and how I was interacting, social cues that I was missing out on, which I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be diagnosed until I was 44 with high functioning autism. But I just I gathered this fascination with communication because it was the area that I knew I was struggling with most. And so I would read every book I could find, look at all the research I could look at. And then started to get involved with acting because I thought, well, this is a great way to start to understand how to speak and how to move and how to listen and how to engage an audience emotionally. And I really wasn't very good at it to begin with, but I had a great passion for it. And so uh, before I went to acting school, I decided to take a little detour, slightly different. This was certainly a turning point in my life too, which is where I went to live up in the foothills of the Himalayas in a little Tibetan monastery up in northeastern India, where I'd be teaching English to a group of Tibetan monks. And a couple of reasons why I decided to do that. Firstly, you know, I'd had a great, privileged, comfortable upbringing, and I really wanted to do something for people who needed help. But also, I wanted to challenge myself with communication. So, so there I was. I arrived at this little monastery in the middle of nowhere, where we had barely any electricity, the phone barely worked for maybe, you know, maybe one hour a week, it would be working. No internet back in those days. So I was very much cut off and living with people who didn't speak any English. And so I had to learn how to use my body language and use my tone of voice in order to connect and to communicate with them. And by the end of six months of living with them, I'd learned this way of connecting and communicating purely non-verbally. And they had learned how to speak pretty decent English back to me. And I'd learned how to speak Nepali, which was the main language of, of the area. Came back to the UK, completely fascinated with communication and all that I could learn non-verbally. And that's then when my studying as an acting career began. And I spent three years studying acting in London at one of the professional drama schools there, learning how to stand, sit, move and breathe in a way that would transform a character or move an audience or move someone on stage with me. And it was really then the culmination, you know, bringing this together in my business is that I put the body language skills and the storytelling skills and the teaching skills I'd learned, put them together and then started to train people how to do this in the world of business. And I've been on that journey then ever since. Well, where did this passion come from? Like where did this fire burst out in you that you wanted to do this professionally? I really recognized from an early age that that this was an area that I was struggling with. And I think pretty quickly it became clear for me, there must be other people who are struggling to communicate as well. You know, I wasn't the only person at school who was, who was struggling there. Other friends of mine had challenges with communication as well. And I thought, well, you know, if, if this is something that is helping me, 
Okay, help me become a teacher, help me become an actor, help me start a business. Maybe I could start to teach other people. And my passion has always been to help people fulfill their true potential. Because people say knowledge is power. Well, knowledge is useful, but if knowledge just sits in your mind and you can't communicate it and connect with anybody, then it's not really going to be that useful for you. So we always want to help people find their voice, share their ideas in the most impactful way, and therefore help them tilt the world in a more positive direction. Because you know, I, I don't believe that people who shout the loudest should be the ones who are in charge of everything. Sometimes it's people with quiet voices who have brilliant ideas. And so my passion is like, every day, often the clients say, wow, where do you still have your energy from at 10 o'clock at night when we are zonked out and you're still ready to teach us? And it really comes from that mission to, to help people fulfill their greatest potential in, in that area. Oh, isn't it great when you identify a passion Something that yeah. you know can make a difference. And it gives you so much energy, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I really feel it when I'm in my flow and helping people. I don't need food. I don't need oxygen. <laughs> I just need to, uh, to be teaching these people. And I absolutely love that opportunity. I think part of my passion from this also has stemmed from, I didn't realize until this recent diagnosis, is that by having high-functioning autism, I see the world slightly differently. So most people are called neurotypical and they see the world the way that they see it. But almost like fish in water, most people don't realize that they are in the water. And when something's going wrong, they're not sure why. Whereas I'm sort of outside the fishbowl and I can look and I can see the fish and I can see the water. I'm really always analyzing what is happening here and how do I get involved in the situation and so that's allowed me to uh, develop. And, we, and a few years ago, we published research in the Journal of Psychology, one of the largest studies ever put together on nonverbal communication, showing the very small changes that leaders can make and people can make day after day in order to gain more support from people around them, in order to appear more confident, more convincing, be seen as a better leader. And it all came from that analysis that I've been doing privately for so many years to try and figure out how to improve my own communication. So it's been lovely to be able to publish that and, and share that with people too. Oh, how interesting. I hope uh, if you could send me that information, I'd love to put it as a footnote in the transcript. Yeah, absolutely. I will do. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so Richard, as you may know, as we work on becoming your best, one of the things that we've done is we've really been captivated and, and at the heart of our research is what sets apart high-performing individuals from all the rest and high-performing teams from all the rest? And so we've had the good fortune. I have personally to interview over 175 CEOs throughout the world and really looking for what set them apart. And we found that they weren't perfect. But what we observed over and over again is that there were 12 things that they did that created their exceptionalism and set them apart. And that's what we put in the book, Becoming Your Best, the 12 Principles of Highly Successful Leaders. One of those happens to be, be an effective communicator. <laughs> yeah, I'm it's sure. one of the big ones. Highly successful leaders are this, and yet our clients and people, as we assess what they want to hear about, this is consistently among one of the biggest requests we have of we would like to work in this area. So I mean to tell you, I am so thrilled to have you, Richard, with us because like you're one of the best in the world. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. And I, I completely agree. It has to be. If you want to be an effective 
leader, certainly an effective CEO, you've got to be a great communicator. You know, gone are the days where decades ago, perhaps, you know, the CEO could sit in their office at the, uh, the top of the, uh, of the building and just direct some orders at, at, at a few members of staff. You've got to be a fabulous communicator for success. And I'm really glad that I got that lesson early in life and was able to pursue it. Okay, so if you don't mind, I'm going to just take us just a little bit off the path and I would love to get any tips on what are some of the things you've learned as an actor. Like I loved what you're saying, how to stand, how to talk. What are some of the tips of things that you can share with our listeners of things, how they can physically carry themselves or things that stood out from you, if you don't mind? Yeah, of course. One of the first things that I remember learning, and this is going back some years now, back when I was like 19, 20 years old, I was in London at the time, what was considered, you know, the greatest acting school, most successful one. And, and we're working, we're standing on stage and we're trying to figure out how to bring to life some gravitas. And, and when you're studying as an actor, you're 19, but you get given the role of a, uh, you know, a 50 year old judge who is in a, like a massive trial scene because you have to do that to fill out the cast. Everyone's 19. And so you have to figure out, well, how do I have the gravitas for this role? And there's many different tips that are given, such as, you know, go and watch, uh, Go and watch Jack Nicholson in a movie and see how he does it and see if you can bring some of that in. But I wanted something more precise to understand. And so I worked with a movement coach, brilliant guy called Ed, who's a Canadian movement coach. And he was talking to us all about how gravity works on the human body. And he could do this exceptional yoga and sort of stick his legs up in the air and all over body twists and turns that we couldn't do. He said, it's all about understanding gravity. And so this is something that we put into our study that we published in 2016. And so, so many leaders talk about they want presence, they want gravitas, and they say, what is that? How do I get it? And we'll say to them, look, look at an actor who you think has great gravitas or maybe like a politician who you think has got amazing gravitas. What is it they're doing? If you took their words and you gave them to somebody else, they wouldn't have the same gravitas. If you took their costume, their clothes, you gave it to somebody else, their same haircut, it doesn't, that's not where their gravitas comes from. There's something that they do that most people don't do, which is giving them the gravitas, which is that they use their body in great connection with gravity. What does that mean? Most people do what I call the off-center shuffle. So if a leader is standing in front of a room, they will generally sway from one side to the next, from one hip to the next, maybe lifting up a shoe in the air as they do so, or just lifting and leaning on one side while speaking. It feels comfortable. It feels comforting in that way. If people are feeling slightly nervous, just shifting from one side. But what people see when you do that is they see someone who is shifty and they see someone who is a pushover meaning that when you're leaning off to one side, gravity's working against you. And if someone gave you a quick nudge on the shoulder, you'd fall over. You literally are the physical embodiment of being a, a pushover. So, so what we work on with people is getting back to a greater connection with gravity. So if you look at a child, when they first learn how to stand up, they stand up with their feet too close together, they fall down. If they stand up with their feet too wide apart and splayed in different directions, then they fall down. But eventually they work out that if they stand up with their feet shoulder width apart and a little bit of ease in the legs, so not too stiff, suddenly they can stand because they're in exact connection with gravity. And we show leaders how to do the same thing. So it's not about standing bolt upright like an army soldier. It's, it's not that. Instead of that, it's about having a balance between left foot, right foot, toes and heels, having them about shoulder width apart 
It's like a ready position. If you imagine what people look like if someone is playing golf or tennis or basketball, they're about to take an important shot. They don't stand feet together. They don't lean off onto one hip. They physically ready themselves with gravity and then they do it. And you can do the same thing sitting down. You can do the same thing over a webcam just by lifting up your sternum. So the center of your chest plate, lifting it up to realign your posture. So your spine is going straight down towards the ground. It gives you that physical visual representation of gravitas. And that was one of the small indicators that we saw in this uh, published uh, research we came out with. Ah, great. All right. Well, good. Those are good tips. That's good stuff. So you kind of get grounded there and sit erect and it makes a difference. I guess it makes a difference how you feel and how you present and maybe more on your toes, right? Yeah. It gives you a great sense of feeling firm and strong and grounded and visually what it looks like. People know if they came to give you a nudge on the shoulder, you're not going anywhere. So suddenly when you say to them, this must be done by four o'clock, Instead of looking like a pushover, you look like someone who is going to stand their ground, which again is where that word or that phrase would come from. We also found an important one actually for leaders is that uh, gestures really matter. There's many people, particularly as they get more senior in an organization, they get a bit self-conscious and they think, okay, I don't want to gesture too much because I'll look like a clown or or I'll look silly or I'll, I'll look like I'm flapping around. But actually, we connect gestures with the passion that the speaker has, and they become visually engaging. There's no way to engage somebody on a Zoom meeting or Teams meeting or even an in-person meeting if you're just going to be still and make no facial expressions, no gestures. And so you have to make sure virtually that you are framing your shot well enough that people can see your hands because we want to represent that sense of being across the boardroom table with people. But also, even if people can't see you, like as I'm sure, you know, people are listening to my voice now, you can recognize with there's some gestures happening behind uh, my voice because they're powering the voice, giving emphasis. And you can hear it in Steve's voice as well. And this is what great voice actors do. Just a quick pause, because I know our listeners can't see, but I'm looking at Richard, man. His hands are emphasizing things and and I can feel it, too. So I, I know that the listeners, I, I want you to just imagine what you're seeing in your mind is really happening. He's right. You know, <laughs> you can hear the voice and, and he gives some emphasis and those hands are going out and keep going, bud. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you go and look at your whoever your favorite actor is that does a voiceover, they often do these uh, great behind the scenes recordings of how voiceover actors create these animated movies like Tom Hanks in uh, in Toy Story, or I was watching recently all of the actors and singers behind the movie Sing 2 that just uh, came out, which my kids really love. And you're never going to see the actor's performance because it'll be animated, but they're, they're physically moving their hands around to match the passion and the emphasis they want on key points. So you need to do that even if people can't see you, but when they can see you, if you do that visual emphasis, it gives them more reason to look at you and it gives them more clarity around your message. And we found that people who do no gestures or who do low gestures, so low energy, low below the waist, sort of low impact gestures, they get terrible ratings compared to people who are doing gestures that are above the waist and have emphasis and energy behind them. Suddenly your ratings go up. Awesome. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. And and so Richard, can everyone become a better communicator or are some people just born better at this than others? 
Yeah, this is a, a great question because I get asked this by so many people. Or in fact, I get resistance from many of the people. So as you mentioned, we train over 100,000 people from all over the world, all walks of life, all different ages, industries. And occasionally I get somebody who walks into the room. They look like that maybe they've been sent there by their manager. They're not really convinced about doing this training. And they may sit there and say, look, you can't teach someone how to communicate. Either you've got it or you haven't, and I haven't got it. So why, you know, why even try? And then I share with them my story around this. So there's a lady that I interviewed a couple of years back uh, on a podcast where she was a specialist in early stage development of communication skills. And she said, look, out of all the, the, the children, all the people that she works with, 90% of them will find communication very straightforward. There's two and a half percent of people who have some kind of permanent challenge, like permanent hearing loss. And then there's another seven and a half percent in there that have some kind of challenge that providing they recognize it and they're working on it to improve their skills, they can improve. And after the podcast, I said to her, I've got a suspicion that I'm in that seven and a half percent. And she said, no, 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 you can't be. You, you teach communication. You write books about communication and you're doing a, hosting a podcast. You can't, that, you can't be in that group. And I said, just, just take me through this. What do you do to qualify to be in this group? And it turns out I was in that group. And she said, you know, you're, you're living proof of the fact that somebody who had major challenges with communication can learn everything and put it all into action. And so, you know, I always offer that up to people to say, I didn't start, I didn't start life as a great communicator. I started struggling. It took me many, many years to figure this stuff out. And what I was able to do in that time is to learn simple steps, simple structures and processes people can use so that if they practice them, you know, just like learning how to play tennis, can everyone win Wimbledon? Well, no, but everybody can learn how to have a, a great game of tennis. You just need to know about forehand, backhand, serve, volley, and the rules. And you practice enough, you can have a great game of tennis and really enjoy it. You may not be the world's greatest champion, but you, you can definitely get up there and play the game. Wonderful. Okay, good. Now, let's just talk about storytelling. That's a big part of communicating, and that's something I would like to I aspire to try to do a good job of that. I know that when I hear a good story, like I am so locked in, right? But it's kind yeah. of challenging sometimes. So how do you be a good storyteller? How do you captivate your listeners, your audience? And what, what are your thoughts about that? How can we do a good job? And, and how do we get locked into that world? This is such a key area, and it's been a hot topic for so many years now in business. But sadly, it's, it's uh, very poorly understood from the experience that I've had of uh, pe people who talk about this. And I think the key behind this, I spoke once to Robert McKee, who is a brilliant sort of godfather of storytelling in Hollywood. And he said, the funny thing with storytelling is that most people don't bother learning it because that they, they think they already must be good at it. Like they've heard stories all the way through their life since... Their parents first read them once upon a time. And so they think, okay, I know what this is. But it's a bit like someone listening to lots of music and assuming that they will instantly be a good composer without ever getting the lessons behind how musicality really works. And so storytelling, the key bit to understand about why this is so important is that the brain processes information through the power of story. So thousands and thousands of years ago, when we had to pass on life and death survival messages to our tribe. We didn't have spreadsheets. We didn't have PowerPoint. We had the power of story. And we had to be so good at it that for generations to come, people would remember the story, remember the lessons, and take action on it. 
Whereas these days, if people go into a, uh, a team meeting, most people have forgotten 90% of it by the time it's after lunch. And someone says, hey, what was that meeting about? And they can't remember because it's just words, bullet points, spreadsheets, and graphs. And so that's why story is so important. And the key to good storytelling is lighting up the key areas of the brain in the right order. We need to be engaging with the survival brain, the emotional brain, and the logical brain in that order to make the brain think, I need to listen to this. I care about this information and I know what I'm supposed to do about it. And so they leave the meeting taking some action. That's what great stories really do. Big picture details and actions, engaging the emotion survival brain to make sure they care about it and put it all into action. And so when you do that, storytelling can be a bit like, I've often thought it's a bit like the movie Inception, if people are familiar with this, Leonardo DiCaprio movie, where he's able to plant a thought inside somebody's mind that transforms how they think and how they feel. And you can do that through the power of story used purposefully and positively towards your team, rather than saying, here's a list of things that must be done, or here's the date that the company started, and that's why you should care about it. If you build a story around it, then suddenly they are emotionally connected to it much more powerfully. And it's about understanding you know, what that structure is such that you can take any information. We, we've taught organizations to transform every email into a story. And so the action from the story happens in the subject heading, and then the story itself happens in the message. And so instead of reading reams of emails thinking, I don't know what this is about, you just read stories all day and you take an action. And so we found that people uh, love that because it gives them great efficiency and a much more enjoyable day at work. Richard, how do you pick your stories? Oh, how do I pick my stories? Well, for me and also for, for a lot of people we work with, often we don't get to pick the stories. We, we have that sense of having a message that must be delivered and then thinking, how on earth am I going to deliver this in a way that is memorable and the people are going to care about it? And so, you know, honestly, you can take any information, no matter how dry it might seem to be, and you put it into the power of a story and suddenly it lifts and transforms. But I will say I've learned along the years that when we go and pitch for business, say there's like three or four companies pitching down at that final decision-making stage, and then we get the phone call saying, hey, we've gone with you guys. It's amazing the number of times the story about the monks, me teaching English with the monks comes up. And so I mentioned it you know, at the, the, the top of this uh, podcast because it's something memorable that I did. People can visualize it. I often go into a lot more detail around it. So there's a visceral experience there, but it's, it actually is relevant to the story of who I am and what I teach and what I will do with clients and what we'll talk about on the podcast today. And that's the key is to have something that builds up a sense of credibility at the beginning of a story that is personal to you, sharing something memorable about your life, but in a way that is actually connected to what you're about to say. So I've seen people do it the other way where they've thought, hmm, I've got an interesting, fun story about what happened to me on holiday last year. It has nothing to do with the sales conference that I'm speaking at, but hey, you know, let's just, let's just go with it. So instead, I would say, think about, first of all, how do you want your audience to feel and what action would you love them to take after this meeting? What, what do you want them to be remembering, doing, thinking about three months after this meeting, if it's an important one? And then you build the story towards that goal rather than necessarily just grabbing one that's out of your memory box. Well, thank you for taking the time on that. That was really helpful. One of the things I found is I like to use stories that move me. In other words, they're meaningful to me. 
but then they carry the characteristics you just talked about. In other words, they're fun, they're emotional, but they have a purpose and, mm. and people could relate to them. And they, it seems like they connect us more, but they have an objective of helping us get to a better place uh, where we relate mm-hmm. to one another. We're on the same page, but I think you just described that, but I hope that's helpful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. If, you, if you've got something that you are personally, passionately connected to, that's going to really help you come to life with your body language, with your voice. People are going to feel the emotion that, that's coming through it. And what we often say to people is, if you're going into a meeting where that isn't the case, then focus on the people in the room and think, why am I actually here? I am here to emotionally connect with you and lift you through what I'm about to say. And so I used to do a lot of work for a Formula One racing team, and I have no interest in Formula One. I've got no interest in cars, to be honest. But I thought my job here is to connect with people and make this engaging. And what I do love is basketball. And so I was ta- when I was talking about my passion for that sport, I was thinking about my passion for basketball. And so I could connect through a real passion. But also my real passion, too, is the connection of those people in the room. And I thought, if I tell this story and I care deeply about the people listening, then that will help bring my passion to life for a subject that was not my favorite. Okay, great. As we're kind of getting towards the end of our interview today, what principles can leaders focus on to improve their communication? A couple of key things that that we often work on with leaders is, first of all, congruency. To go all the way back to my story there about the monks, congruency is critical. And a lot of people talk about wanting to be authentic communications, wanting to be genuine. And when we bring up the subject of congruency in communication, they say, no, 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 I've got that. I, you know, I'm, I'm very good at just being myself, but it's not about just being yourself. Just being yourself really means being all of the bad habits you've built up throughout your entire lifetime and being those when you speak to people. And so often just being what currently feels comfortable for you doesn't mean congruent communication. So when I say congruency, I mean making sure your body language, voice, and words all go in the same direction. And the direction they're going in is changing how people feel about the information. And so if you don't want to do that, that's fine. Just send people an email. If you're having a meeting or if you're in person with people or if you're virtual, you've got to think, how do I change the way they feel? and get your body language, tone of voice, and words going in the same direction. And to draw in the monks, what I always think about is, would my monks understand how I wanted them to feel, even if they didn't understand the words. That's when you know you're having congruency. And that's what I had to do for six months while I was teaching them. So congruency is key. And the second key is lift. And what I mean by lift is really great communication, and particularly for leaders, is that you're aiming to lift people or elevate them from a negative or a neutral state towards a more positive or more useful state through your interactions. So if you focus on lift and do, ha- do have congruency in those situations, you're going to be a great communicator. Great, Richard. I'm just always stunned how fast these interviews go. Like we're at the end <laughs> already. Yeah. And this has been so captivating and so helpful. You've had so many good ideas. And how about any final tips to our listeners on communication before we wrap it up? And then we would love to hear about how they can learn more about you. So I think as a final thought on communication, this is an area everybody can get better at, and it can take all of your knowledge and all of the things you want to get done and just accelerate it through that power of communication. And so I encourage people to think about this. If you think, look, I don't have time to practice, I don't have time to prepare for my next meeting, just consider this as a leader, 
if you are speaking on a virtual meeting for an hour, you might think, oh, I just flip on a webcam and talk. But if you're speaking to 100 people, you're speaking for 100 hours. How much time of preparation is that worth? Remember that, and then suddenly you'll give the preparation the work that it deserves, and maybe give your communication skills uh, the investment that they deserve too, because that's the number of hours that you might be speaking in just in one meeting. Think of how many you've got this week, and then you'll start to realize the value of investing in yourself to improve in this area. Yeah, the stakes are high, aren't they? Yeah, huge. Okay, well, tell us about how we can learn more and gain more resources on this. So if people want to get in touch and find out more, we've got lots of resources on our website, which is ukbodytalk.com, ukbodytalk.com. And there, if you go to the resources page, we've got videos, we've got articles, loads of things so that people can learn more and, of course, get in touch with us. Okay, repeat that one more time so we've got it. ukbodytalk.com. Perfect. Okay, yeah, that we can do. Well, thank you, Richard, for being part of this show today. It's been a delight. Yeah, same for me. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, congratulations and best to you as you're helping our world be a better world. Great. Thank you very much. Okay. And to all of our listeners, it's been a privilege to have you on and thank you for being part of this show. This is why we do it. I just feel so connected to you. Thank you for your energy and wherever you are, we wish you the best as you're working not only on becoming your best, But in the process, you're blessing everybody around you. The very fact you take time to listen in to Richard and I today says a lot about you. So we wish you a great day and wishing you the best, not only today, but every day. This is Steve Schallenberger, your host with Becoming Your Best Global Leadership. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Your Best podcast. If there was something in this podcast that you felt would be helpful for a family member, a friend, or even a coworker, we invite you to share this podcast with them now while you're thinking about it. Also, remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Now, for additional resources and tools, such as how to join our monthly peak performance coaching program, or how to get certified as a trainer or coach, or schedule a workshop or keynote, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. So thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and a great week.